All right. Now, if you could join me in your Bibles in 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please pray with me. God, we love you today and we thank you for this word. We thank you for this time and we thank you for this body of believers that you've gathered here. I thank you for our varied gifts. I thank you that you have, you've given us good things and that you promise good things for us. And I just pray that you'd humble us. I pray that we would just open the door to the Holy Spirit, that we would use our gifts and that we'd use our knowledge and our wisdom to just grow closer to you and encourage others to be closer to you this morning and this week. Uh, we love you, Jesus, and pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. Thank you. Just a, a couple. My I'm green here. A couple of other, just two quick announcements, and uh, that is that we have a couple of baby announcements. We have uh, Dermot and Tracy Stoke, our grandparents. Do you want to stand up, Dermot? Give us the name and just the details. <laughs> Grandparents, number one, number one. All right, and then Tom and Hannah are here visiting. And if you don't know, Tom, tell us the name of your little baby girl. Oh, is she being borrowed? <laughs> June can stand up with Tom and Hannah's baby. Wow. Good parenting. Good parenting. Is that you, June? So this is Renee Ruth. Renee Ruth. All right. And just give us a quick update, Tom, just a 30-second update of you guys are in Colorado and what they're doing, and just very brief. Um, we had a child. We had a baby. Excellent. Really good to see you guys again. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we are continuing our study on 1 Peter. And uh, Peter, at, at this point in the letter, is going to write um, about how we do community, how we have um, healthy friendships, and how we are to function as a church family. Um, it, it's, it is essential that you um, understand what it means to be a part of a church community. And so Peter this morning is going to give us um, some clarity on, uh, on why we exist and, and what we're to be doing uh, as a church family. Um, but 
just to give you the context, again, Peter's writing a letter to a number of churches, and he's writing to people who are followers of Christ. And I think it's important for us just to, for clarity to, to explain again what that means. And that Peter is writing to people who first and foremost view Jesus Christ as their substitute. That Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for our sins. And secondly, following that then, is that he, he gives us his word to teach us how to live our lives and to understand that. And if we get that order wrong, it, it leads to some quite damaging things. And it leads to a relationship based on one of grace or one of, of rules. And if you just view Jesus Christ as a moral good teacher for you, uh, the danger of that is that when you do a really good job, you become a little bit self-righteous and you become a little bit um, really good at identifying problems in other people's lives. And that leads towards what we would say just reli self-righteous religion. Those are the people that um, Jesus Christ spoke against. They were called the Pharisees. So an Old Testament example of that would be the Passover that the Hebrews were uh, enslaved in Egypt, and God provides a Passover lamb, and, and, and the Israelites are set free, and then after that, God gives them the Ten Commandments. So the order is essential, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us as our substitute, to take our place. So what, if we can just reflect on that for a second, what kind of attitudes what we have within our hearts as we think through that. And I believe two, two things that would appear in our lives that would be evidence that you understand that would be humility, humility and boldness for Christ. Humility and boldness for Christ. And so Peter, if you recall, <clears throat> was the guy who gives the first sermon in Acts chapter 2. And so he wants to encourage people and, and help them <clears throat> Learn how to live. Now, if you are here this morning and you don't agree with Christianity or you are thinking through it or you are skeptical about it and you're asking questions, and, and I welcome you and I'm glad you're here and, and we respect um, your willingness to think through things. But Christianity does offer a coherent way to live your life. It offers a view of life that sustains us and gives us hope. And the alternative then is is doing life our own way. And how, how are we going to do life? What is your view of life? If it is not Christianity, what is it? What is the view of life? Christianity offers a view of life, and Christianity offers a view of how we do life together and offer community together. Uh, I came across a, uh, a very short, funny clip um, from The Simpsons, and I'll, I'll tell you that I'm... I'm not, I, I wasn't a, a huge Simpsons fan, but the writers were often very brilliant. All right, and so uh, this very short clip is a, is a clip from, um, I, I, I might get the exact words wrong, but it's a, a festival called Do-It-Yourself Festival, where you just get to live life your way. However you want to live life, you do it your way. And so I just want to try to persuade you and have you think about the gospel gives you a way to live that leads to humility and boldness. In contrast, 
to you doing life your way. You doing life your way. And, uh, all right, can we get this to play here? It's very short, it's 30 seconds, but I, I will say this. What's your feel, festival? Back anyway. I'm not going to lay any rule trip on you today. <laughs> so good. So good. I got you. Here, this bandstand wasn't double bolted, huh? Oh, it didn't feel like it. Hey, I hear you, buddy. Uh, I don't want to judge the rightness of your ego orientation, but my inner critic says you should have done your job. Hey, now, Marge, let's not should this fella to death. Yeah, next you'll be laying a guilt trip on me for not oiling that Ferris wheel. <laughs> All right, so the grace of God compels us to a new way of living. The grace of God compels us to a new way of living. In contrast to you doing life your own way, and I don't feel like it. I don't feel like the grace of God creates boldness and humility in our lives. And so Peter is writing, writing this letter to people who have this attitude, this humility, and this boldness in their lives. And so humility is the idea that, yes, I'm willing to listen to God's word, that I'm willing to take in and wrestle and think through what God's word is saying. And so this morning, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, Peter is writing to us about community and how we do community. And so um, verse 7 begins this, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Now, uh, let me just give you a little bit of context uh, on that phrase. The end of all things is at hand. I can, I can tell you that growing up, we, you know, we all have a context and, and we filter things through life and it just so happens since I'm the one doing the speaking this morning, that that phrase filters through me. So when I read that phrase this week, I was like, oh boy. All right, so my context is this, growing up in the 80s, I don't know if it was that time period or what, but there were a handful of movies about the end of the world. And there were these Christian movies that were just really bad, I just, but they were really scary for me as a kid. Like the end of the world, and I can remember distinctly being in a grocery store and I couldn't find my mom. And I thought I'd missed the rapture and that I was left and I was just like, ah, crying. And like, oh, found my mom, I guess I'm okay. So all this is like weird stuff. And then I remember, you know, as you get older, um, you start thinking a little bit more clearly, hopefully. But I remember being a freshman in college, and uh, I was at a Christian college, and this guy, I, I wrote his name, I had to look this up, because I was like cracking up. This guy named Edgar uh, Wisenhant, and he, I guess he's like a NASA scholar or something, like some brilliant guy. He predicted it was um, like September, yeah, September, actually kind of crazy, September 11th, 1988. He predicted that the end of the world was coming. And we were in class, and my professor was there, and we were all excited. And, just, and we're like, and the professor too, and we're looking at the clock going, yeah, three, two, one. And we're like, eh. And obviously, right, it's, it's just like this continual quackery of like nuttiness. So, the end of, so here's what I've done for a large part of my life, is that this phrase, the end of all things, when I, 
read things like that in the Bible, I think of like really bad Christian movies that tried to freak people out. Or, and if you look this up online, there are dozens or maybe hundreds of like what I'll just call crazy people that keep predicting that Jesus is coming back on this date. The problem with that is, with my view, is that there's something valuable, actually, that Peter is writing about here. And all it takes is a little bit of reading and thoughtfulness and thinking to find out exactly what Peter is talking about. And it's not some weird Christian movie um, where a nuclear bomb's going to end the whole world or some weird prophetic thing from some crazy person. So let's just try to get clear on what Peter is talking about. And I have a few verses just to show you. So let's begin. Um, I think it's the first slide, chapter 1, verse 20, is it? All right, so I'm going to give you a few places in the Bible to help us understand and not allow our minds go to nutty things. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, he writes this, he w Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest to us in the last times for the sake of you. All right, so that's, that's helping a little bit, that Jesus was made manifest in the last time. So there's some connection here with the birth of Christ. Next. Acts chapter 2, verse 16. This is the first sermon that Peter preaches. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be that God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So this is Acts chapter 2, the very first sermon that's preached, and he's referring to these last days. Okay? Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, this is, remember, this is written during the first century. Long ago at many Many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he has created the world. But then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by sacrifice to himself. So here's the idea that I believe that the Bible is talking about this time is that when Christ was born, at that moment that Christ was born, that began the end age, the end times. And at some point in the future, Jesus Christ will return. So whenever you see that, and you see it a lot in the Bible, that these end times, that it's referring to this time between when Christ was born until when he will return again. Now, 2 Peter... Let me go to the second, and this is really interesting. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, Peter writes this, Knowing this, first of all, that there will be people who mock this, be scoffers. Scoff, people will joke and make light of this idea that um, in the last days, people will scoff following their own sinful desires. They will say this, Where is this promise of, of his coming, of Christ returning? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all the things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. All right, skipping ahead now. This is, this is really interesting and significant. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. <clears throat> so let's stop here for one second. Jesus Christ rose from the grave 
about 2,000 years ago, approximately. How many days, how long does God view that? Two days. As of two days. Look, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Do you see how time is viewed differently by us in contrast to God? God is saying it's as if Jesus Christ rose from the grave two days ago. Right? We just don't think this way. But this should shape the way we live our lives, okay? And this is why, this is the why behind this. Do not overlook this. Excuse me, thank you. The Lord is not... There we go. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, right? Some people are like, he's never going to come. Well, there's a reason. God is patient towards people, not wishing that any should perish, but that should all reach repentance. We can stop there. So Peter's writing this letter, and he's saying, the end of times is at hand. And he wants us to be... Um, Alert, and here's what he says: the end of all times, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers. So, number one, when we think about how we are to live as a church family, as a as a church community, we are to be people of prayer. We're to be people of prayer. And he he makes this connection with. Um, a significant word, and the word is sobriety. Peter writes this, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, we, we obviously know that this is a metaphor to what, not literal drunkenness, but we are to be sober in our thinking. So the question is, and we think about this, and we try to study the Bible, we ask, how does your prayer life flow out of sobriety? How does your prayer life come out of sobriety, the metaphor of sobriety. And so we must think about this, the question, then another follow-up question is, what keeps us from praying? What keeps us from praying? And I was thinking, um, I, I heard, uh, I did some reading from a John Piper sermon, and, and he said something that, that just stuck with me, and I think it just fits with our culture. That as Americans, as our culture, who we are today as a people, we are all about being productive that we, we want to, to, to be known as people who get our work done. That people in Tibet, they pray. People in America, we're productive. We get work done. That that's who we are. That, and here's what happens, right? We say busyness. There's always busyness, busyness, busyness. And to that I'm saying, according to Peter, you're drunk. You're, you're, not, you're not sober in your thinking. That, Peter says that the end of the times is here. Be sober in your thinking. And if you're sober in your thinking, prayer will be a big part of our lives. Listen, I, I, think, I'm, I think we are all very similar in this view of life. That we are drilled into our minds to be people who want to work. I, I just know that living in Southern California, in the culture that we live in, that we are naturally driven people. I don't have to come up here and say, um, you need to show up for work on time. People are extremely motivated. People are productive people. They're hardworking people. That is not the concern. The concern, according to Peter, is that we would be drunk and intoxicated with being productive people. That excludes then our prayer life. 
So what is it that will hinder our prayer life? Busyness, being productive, having wrong priorities in our lives. And it's connected to our identity. If you think about this for a second, we think of, uh, if you think of drunkenness, if you think of literal intoxication, we think of people who um, can't walk straight, they slur their words, they have a hard time functioning. Peter is saying this, sober-minded people are prayerful people. And in our culture today, people who are intoxicated with being busy and productive, how do they look? I'll tell you what busy, productive people look like today. They don't look like drunken, slobbering, stumbling fools. They look amazing. They have nice cars. They're super fit. They have a nice place to live. Their lives look amazing. They're the most admirable, admirable people that we know because their life is together, because they're productive. They get things done. They're successful people. And Peter's saying, you're drunk. You're intoxicated with being successful. When productivity and busyness and success drive prayer out of your life, then you know that you're not sober-minded and it prevents your prayers from being answered. So, number one, Paul sa- excuse me, Peter says that as a church community, be alert to busyness. Be alert to the culture that we live in. Have your prayer life be an effective part of your life. It is, I'll, I'll just, I'll say this. I have my little office back there and I have a little desk and I have books. I would much rather sit and read a book and underline things and write things or ask questions than pray. You know why? Because I feel good inside. I feel like I'm producing something. I'm being productive with my life. And I'm trying to persuade all of us, including my own life, that that is, that without prayer, it is a missing element of our, our relationship with Jesus Christ. That we are being intoxicated by the world. And it's quite possible, and I won't say this this morning, but I wrote down in my notes, some of us here might be drunk off our blink in love with the world. That we're just, we're just stupering around in love with the world and we're not, we're not praying, we're not people who pray. Number one, that's number two. Peter says this, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. That we are to love each other earnestly. The context of Peter, again, is that people are struggling, that, that he's writing this letter to encourage them. And here's what we all know. The more stressed out your life is, when stress levels go up, when work is hard, a relationship's hard, we, get, we are susceptible to being grumpy that our fuses shrink, that our patience level shrink. I can remember teaching uh, eighth graders and I would say to them, listen, I have a finite amount of patience and it's just about gone. You've got to use it up for the day, right? And so stress, anxiety, just think about your life for a second. Financial pressure, marriage problems, relationship, friendship, all these things that happen we're more susceptible to fight. We're more susceptible to say things to each other that hurt one another. Husbands and wives are more likely to hurt each other when stress levels are high. And here, think about the, the paradox of this. When stress levels are high, what do you need the most? 
You need love. So there's something going on here that Peter is trying to communicate the importance of this, that the stressfulness of life, the pain of life that, that comes, what's most needed is that we show love to one another, that we love one another earnestly. So Paul said, excuse me, Peter, verse 8 says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Here's the key word, underlie the word since. Why? What does love do? Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. And we need to think about that for a second. What does that mean, that love covers a multitude of sins? There's two dimensions that we can, just, as far as love, let's think about love in, in two different ways. One is forgiveness, all right? So here's the ideal world. Life is really stressful. We can just use husband and wife if we want for a second. Kids aren't sleeping. Um, work isn't going that great. You had a few extra car bills and medical bills or things, maybe financially things are going on. And the husband says something really mean to his wife, right? Or a friend or a boyfriend or whatever you want to think. The ideal world would be that the wife could say something like, that was really mean. That hurt my feelings. And the husband would say, man, you're right. I'm so sorry. Would you forgive me? That, right, that's the ideal world, right? That we... <laughs> That we love each other and we forgive each other. That like, man, oh, I'm sorry, babe. I didn't know I did that. So, in a perfect world, in all of our problems that we have in life, that forgiveness would work. That, that somebody could say, I'm sorry, you're right. I was wrong. The other person can say, I forgive you. We are back together on the same page and life goes on. Let's live in that place, okay? But, but, now there's a huge but, because we, that doesn't always work, all right? So now we have to think of the other dimension of love. Can we go to the next passage? The uh, Colossians or the Ephesians one. There it is, thank you. All right, let's, let's look to the Apostle Paul for a second to help us explain Two dimensions of love. One is forgiveness. That, that's good. I, that's, that's the ideal. The second, though, is forbearance. The word forbearance. All right? So this is going to connect again with humility. When you understand that Jesus Christ came as your substitute, it will create humility in your life. And humility will allow love to grow. One important dimension of love is forbearance. So then... Put, so, Paul writes this, Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, as if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. So, here's Paul. He's going to explain these two words, too, about um, forgiveness and forbearance. So, um, forbearance. Here's a... Uh, Forbearance is the idea that you refrain from doing what you have the right to do. Not doing what you have the right to do. So, when you have the argument or the fight or we have some tension, the person who is offended has the right to say, that really hurts me. You shouldn't do that. Or we throw it right back in the face. Right? And here's what happens. This cycle of tension and fighting happens. And at some point, 
Somebody has to show love, express their love through forbearance, which means you are just going to absorb it. That you are going, you are going to be the one who breaks the cycle. Who is going to be the cycle breaker in your relationships? Love, Peter says this, above all else, love each other earnestly. And one part of that love is forbearance. I think we have a, an Ephesians passage that explains this too. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with, there's that word again, bearing. That means you are the one who absorbs. You are the absorber. You are not the retaliator. You are the absorber, and you love it because you want to break the cycle that happens. Peter says this again, verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. But that's what we are known for. So again, Peter writes this letter, and he's giving us he's giving us grace. He's teaching us how to live together. He's teaching us how we function as followers of Jesus Christ, and we are first, we're sober-minded, prayerful people, that we do not allow the busyness of the world to end your prayer life. We've got to figure out a way to be people who are praying and not allow the excuse of busyness to push prayer out of our life. Then he says that we are to be loving each other. We are to be people who forgive and forbear. Next, and this is, this doesn't feel like it fits to me. Next he says, that we are to open our homes to one another, that we are to show hospitality. I think there's, I think there's some, there's deep meaning here that I think sometimes we overlook. That Peter's writing this letter to encourage people who are hurting. And here, think about what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, come up with a formula that explains why God is good and allows suffering. He doesn't say, go to this theological viewpoint of this. Um, he doesn't go to the nature of God. He says something so simple. He says, invite people over to your house. He says, invite people over to your house. Now, I will say that, and there is a long list of people in our church, a long list of people, that are so hospitable. And I can tell you, and I, I'm not going to name names this morning, but I can say there are people in our church, when I've been invited to their homes, you just feel like you're in a safe place. You, you feel like you're in a good place. You feel like, like you can catch your breath with life. Peter is saying that there's something tremendously significant about saying, you know what? Come over and, and, and just be a part of our life. Be a part of our family. Let's, let's have a meal together. And I can tell you, as, as, a, as simple and as untheological as this statement is, it has profound significance. In fact, I, we could probably all agree, at least um, people that have been around a long time, that our church started out of this, out of opening our homes and sharing our homes and sharing life together. Show hospitality to one another. And then these two really, these two words that we wish they weren't there. I could just take a little pencil and go like, shh. Without grumbling. Without grumbling. Oh, 
right? So you've been working all day and you have kids and invite people over. Share your life with people. Nobody cares if your house is dirty, right? Just there's dishes in the sink. It's okay. We don't care. Um, if there's socks on the floor, I'll pick them up for you maybe just by the, the clean side. <laughs> but here's my point. Listen, we just think of so many reasons. Here, here's human nature. Human nature is that when life is hard and life hurts, do you know what we do? We all do. We withdraw. We isolate ourselves. And Peter is saying healthy community is formed when somebody else says, hey, you're, I can, you're withdraw, I can tell you're withdrawing, maybe not these exact words, but you initiate friendship and you say, hey, just, just come over and, and have dinner with us. Be a part of my family's life. Peter is saying that there is something radically significant about people who are going through life and are having struggles that just by inviting them over to your house, you're showing love, you can pray with them, you can share the struggles of life with them. So, Peter is writing this letter to give us clarity of, on who we are and how we are to function as a church. We are to be people who pray. We are to be people who love because love covers sin. We are to be people who are hospitable, that we open our homes to people. And in verse 10, he says this, that we are to be people who serve the community. Verse 10, as, uh, as each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another. Underline this, as each has received a gift. Every person who is a follower of Jesus Christ has been given a gift. And the purpose, there's a couple purposes. Number one, Peter says this, to serve one another. The honest truth is this, that everyone who is a follower of Christ and is a part of a church community should be using their gifts to serve one another. Everyone a gift, everyone serving. And be a part. That's how you become known in a church family. By not forever standing on the periphery and forever not getting involved. And there's a, a long list of ways to be involved. And I won't talk about that this morning, but find a way to serve. And by, by doing that, I'm not saying you have to be here every morning early. I'm not saying that. But find a way to partner in life and contribute the church family. Verse 11 says this, um, excuse me, verse 10, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So Peter is saying that God gives each of us a grace, and that grace is, that's a word for gift, and that we are to use it to serve one another. In verse 11, whoever speaks, so some of the gifts are, vo are, are public speaking people, as the one who speaks oracles from God, and, and then some of them are behind the scenes people, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, I don't know if you could see it in the Simpsons clip, but um, James Brown says, this stage wasn't double bolted. Right? That was like, I want to see that again, but we don't have time. Like that. <laughs> right? Somebody has to be the double bolt guy. Not everyone can be James Brown, can be the lead singer, the guy up front. The double bolt guy. Peter says this, that God gives the gift of being the double bolt guy. That's the behind the scenes guy that makes it all work. 
whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Then Peter says this, you're not doing it on your own strength. In fact, there will be times when you feel exhausted, that you'll make excuses in your mind, I'm too busy, I have too many things going on. And Peter says this, you know what, he says, good, because you should not be doing it on your own strength anyways. You should be serving as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. But Peter is saying that churches are to function as people who pray. And you can just do a self-check analysis. Are you sober in your thinking about your life? And are you allowing aspects of culture to prevent you from praying. Next, he says that we are to be people who love, and that is expressed because through the covering of sin. That means, and I've, I've spoken about this before, that means we can all look around.